Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that it is by means of your word that we are set apart to your service, because as we grow and mature, we learn to serve you, we learn to love you, we learn to love one another, and we learn the vital significance and centrality of a walk with you in our lives. We learn that we are to live according to certain standards, not because they somehow make us more um, more righteous, except, uh, except as we walk with you. They do not uh, make us more acceptable to you because that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. But it is through your word that we grow, we mature, we come to understand who you are and how we are to serve you and how we are to um, exhibit your character in our lives, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to grow from faith to faith. We are to take on the character of Christ as God the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that as we get into your word today, that God the Holy Spirit will use it to challenge us and to transform us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 6 and 7, but what we're looking today at is more of an introduction and a background to understanding uh, the significance of what is uh, stated here. Not It, it shouldn't be 6 and 7. That, I need to change that. It's 8 and 9. And so this is where we're starting. I want to review a couple of things. We see it in the title slide that the basic framework for this epistle is three things. The uh, wealth of the believer, what we have in Christ. Second, it is the walk of the believer. We're still in that section. And third will be the warfare of the believer. It's broken down like this. The wealth is covered in uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 321. And in the closing, it emphasizes in Paul's prayer the significance of what God has given us in our new position, our new identity in Jesus Christ. We become a new creation in Jesus Christ. We are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as Paul develops that in Romans 6, this is a foundation for understanding how we are to begin to live in this new life. We are transformed. It is beyond anything that we can imagine that happened. It was non-experiential. 
we study God's word, we realize that we are now in this new man, this new entity, this new building, this new body of Christ that is being built together as a new temple by God the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we are to live differently. That's not legalism. I remember a time in my life, and a lot of believers, legalism was such a problem, uh, especially with conservatives in the early part of the 20th century, that, that these mandates in Scripture were thought to be necessary to be saved among some groups. With other groups, it uh, was such a harsh view of these mandates that there was no grace. The idea of grace was lost. And that both, both of those go back to the problem that has plagued Christianity since the second century. And that is, what do we do with the sins we commit after salvation? And so this kind of legalism, both at salvation and on, manifests themselves even as early as one of the first epistles of the New Testament, and that was the epistle of Galatians. And so that's always been, been a struggle. But in the midst of Paul's harshest statements against legalism, he always expresses a number of commands that express the standards that we are to live by as believers. And we're going to fall short of those standards, and we're going to have friends that fall short, sometimes um, very obviously, often not. But we all do that because we have a sin nature, and if God really opened our eyes to see how much we sinned, we would be terribly shocked because we just don't fully comprehend the extent even now of the way in which the sin nature uh, influences us. And so we are to walk, as we'll see when we get to the 15th verse of this chapter, sort of a summary as we reach a conclusion that we're to walk carefully in wisdom. And all of these various terms that are used in chapters 4 and 5 for how we live the Christian life under the metaphor of walking. And then... In the third, we'll see that we're in a warfare every single day, every waking moment, sometimes when you're asleep. But every waking moment, we're in a warfare. And the warfare is not external. It is internal. It's between our ears. Um, I've got a book out that Tommy Ice and I wrote over 30 years ago on spiritual warfare I've read it a couple of times as we've gone to reprint it, and I don't see any reason to change anything. And um, uh, But we wrote that because there, in, in a vast swath of evangelical Christianity, not to mention the ones that aren't evangelical, there is a failure to understand what spiritual warfare is. They think it's all about fighting demons and fighting spirits. But spiritual warfare is all about making the right biblical choices in our thinking. And that's the foundation of it. We have external enemies, but never are we told to have offensive action against those external enemies. We're to stand fast. It's all defensive language there. We're not attack the devil. We're not to take dominion over the devil or any of those silly things that come out of uh, various churches today. And so you'll hear people talk about spiritual warfare, but they don't mean what I mean. They don't mean what Paul meant. 
They don't mean what God said. And so we have to understand that. Just because people use biblical language doesn't mean they have the same meaning for that for that language. So we are in this center section talking about walking, and it began with this command in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling, worthy of the position, worthy of this new station that we have been placed in, in the body of Christ. This is our calling, this is our new identity, and it involves a new mission. Then we have a negative, a contrast, when we get down to verse 17, where Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So he's saying that you should no longer uh, walk like the unbelievers walk. And at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, um, verse 2, he, or verse 1 and 2, really, he says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Pay attention to that last line. That is talking about the unbelieving world, the sons of disobedience. So we are not to walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk because their understanding is darkened having been alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them, because of the blindness of their heart. So they have a, they have a, a, a vain, empty, useless way of thinking. So when you get impressed by academia, you have to recognize that probably 99% of the people you're impressed with have a futile way of thinking. That's been exhibited a lot lately, hasn't it? It's been exposed in the halls of academia that we have allowed the forces of darkness to populate uh, the lecterns of the classroom and academia to teach views that are hostile to the Bible and to pick out students in order to destroy their faith. I had a professor, and this was many decades ago, and he tried to shake the faith of freshmen coming in, taking his Western civilization course. And he shook people up because they really weren't taught anything about the Bible. And so the things that he said really caused them to uh, to wonder if what they believed was actually true. When I was in Connecticut, uh, there was a young lady in the congregation who had uh, grown up there and had listened to me for about six years at that time. This wasn't long before I moved back to Houston. And she matriculated at the University of Connecticut. And back when uh, many of us were in university, we were required to take Western civilization as we entered into university. Now the young ladies are required to take feminist studies, women's studies, and she came back after her first week of university, and she said, "Within by the second class, the professor, who is a radical feminist, had identified the four evangelical uh, girls in the class and was beginning to uh, uh, ridicule them, belittle them, 
and pick, uh, uh, pick them out in the middle of class and embarrass them because of their Christian beliefs. That was over, almost 20 years ago. And it's much worse now. And so we live in a world where the unbelieving world is dominating with their empty thinking. We should not respect it at all. And it is related to ignorance that is in them and blindness of their heart. That's God's opinion of their thinking. And we think, oh, they, they've been to all of these other universities. They have multiple degrees and they pontificate on many subjects, but it is emptiness in God's eyes. And yet too many Christians let their thinking influence them. In Ephesians 5, 2, we get another positive command to walk by means of love as Christ loved us. We talked about that, that the pattern here is one that's impossible for us to measure up to. The only way we can do that is through God the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural uh, love that is uh, developed in us through God the Holy Spirit. It's the first uh, character trait mentioned by the Holy Spirit in the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians, I mean in Galatians uh, 5. Then um, we go back, I mentioned this a moment ago, the contrast with the way we walked before we were saved. In Romans 6, 4, we read that we also should walk in newness of life. This is at the very beginning of three chapters where Paul lays out uh, all of the patterns for walking according to the Spirit and not according to the sin nature. So we're to walk according to the uh, in newness of life. In Romans 8, 4, we're to walk, not to walk according to the flesh, the sin nature, but according to the Spirit. And in Romans 13, 13, he says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, nor in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. In other words, not according to the sin nature. 1 Corinthians 3, 3, which is mistranslated in the New King James, and I've uh, corrected it, um, for you are still carnal, you're still fleshly. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, or are you not fleshly? And uh, the word that is, trans- I forget what the English word is, but the the Greek is peripateo, walking like mere men. So that's a contrast. We we are not to walk like the unbeliever. We're not to walk like the person who is walking according to the sin nature. Second Corinthians 4, 2 says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth. Notice this contrast runs all through the scriptures. There's two ways of thinking. There is a way that is according to truth, truth being defined as reality as God created it, and walking according to the lie. There's no neutral ground. There's no territory in between. There's no uh, neutral zone there where you can live, and it's neither one nor the other. We're either thinking according to the devil's lie or we're thinking according to God's truth. And Second Corinthians 5, 7 says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. So we come to Ephesians 4, 
1 and 4.17, and in this description of the uh, unbelievers, unbelievers' thinking, it describes it with this word uh, that's translated futility, matayotes, matayotes, which has the idea of a purposelessness. It's emptiness. It's, it's vanity. It, it's not going to take us anywhere. And this sort of sets the stage for some of the language that's used about talking and what we talk about, what we think about in the coming verses as we've seen. And in 5, 6, uh, Paul says that let no one deceive you with empty words. Now, this word for empty words is a word usually translated vanity is one way. It has that idea of, of uh, words, ideas, thoughts that are empty foolish, worthless, and it's just vacuity. Now, this morning I had got an email recommendation from a pastor friend of mine that he had just discovered that there was a, a new a dictionary that came out in 2015. I will uh, sort of clean the language up a little bit, but it's a dictionary of BS, which one pastor friend of mine refers to as Barbara Streisand. But you get the point. It's a dictionary with hundreds and hundreds of words, all euphemisms for the same basic thing. And one of the first ones I noticed in looking on Amazon at their little, you know, peek at the first couple of pages is a word called acromaracus. I like that word. It's just acromaracus. Almost sounds like a Harry Potter curse. But it describes swindles and scams intended to deceive with a big showy production. That fits the devil's world. It's designed, it's a swindle and a scam to deceive with a big showy production. The Oxford English Dictionary, not the concise Oxford English Dictionary, but the big one, defines it as pretentious nonsense intended to deceive. That's the way Gentile unbelievers think. It's pretentious nonsense intended to deceive. In other words, it's every type of thought system based on human arrogance and the devil's deception. And instead of being impressed with it, we need to realize that this is just a showy pretense. It's all fake. It has no value. It's designed to swindle and to scam us out of real life. Colossians 2.8 uses this same word as, a, as an adjective modifying deceit. It's empty deceit. It is acromaracus, deceit. That's what it is. So there's a new word for you. Some of you like the word balderdash. Basically means the same thing. Okay? So we're getting down here now to Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. This is a tremendous section. Actually, it goes from um, 5, 8 down through 14. But the first sentence is in 5, 8 through 10. For And it's a second-person plural, so we'll translate it for y'all, were once darkness. That refers to the congregation. Everyone here was at one time a spiritually dead unbeliever living in darkness. You may have 
uh, been saved when you were five or six or 15 or 20 or 30 or 50. But prior to your salvation, no matter how smart you may have been, no matter how highly you thought of yourselves, you were in darkness and you were just uh, filled with acromaracus. We're all going to have to work on remembering that word. For y'all were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Big contrast. Walk as children of light. And that's one of the most significant verses for our spiritual life that we'll see in Scripture because it tells us that we have a new identity and a new position in Christ, which is in the light. That's our identity. That is our legal position. But then we're told to walk in the light. Now, if you automatically would begin to grow as lordship salvation advocates teach, why do we have a command to walk as children of life and that's not just automatically going to take place? We are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. And then there's a parenthetical statement an explanation, a reminder that the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Those words really summarize a gracious uh, orientation in life. And then verse 10 says, by evaluating, I've changed the translation a little bit, by evaluating the issues in life really to determine what is acceptable or pleasing to the Lord. Now, what's interesting is we're going to need to, when we get there next time, is take that verse 9 out because it's a parenthesis and you lose, sort of lose a little bit of the thought because the command is to walk as children of light by evaluating. See, he's, Paul is very practical. He uses these uh, participles of means or manner to tell us how we are to do something. But often they're just translated as a basic participle and we lose the fact that he's telling us how we accomplish the command. And to accomplish the command is walking as children of light. We are to uh, evaluate something for approval, to determine what is good, to determine what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So as a backdrop, I want to talk about this metaphor of light and darkness. What does the Bible teach us about light, life, and darkness? Because when you look at the scriptures, you're either in the light, walking in the light, or you're in darkness or walking in darkness. There's no gray area. You can walk into... Uh, this building, as I do many times and others do, in the middle of the day, and there's some ambient light that comes in through the blinds so you don't trip over the chairs, and you can see a few things. The contrast in the Scripture is between that which illuminates and that which has the darkness of being at the bottom of Carlsbad Canyons with all the uh, Carlsbad uh, Caverns with all the lights off pitch black darkness. There's no intermediate area. There's no ambient light coming in. It's one or the other. Now, fallen man doesn't like the idea that there are absolutes with rigid demarcations between truth and error. 
right and wrong, moral and immoral. They want there to be kind of a wishy-washy gray area that they can sort of uh, crawl around in without uh, getting into too much trouble. But the Bible doesn't give us that option. So let's start. Light is used as a metaphor to describe the essence, the character of God, his essential being. So there's such a thing as physical light. We see that created in Genesis 1-3. And the Lord spoke and said, let there be light. What's really interesting, just is just something you can think about later, is as we look through these passages, we see that God is light and he dwells in unapproachable light. And so prior to uh, the creation of anything, there's light. God dwells in unapproachable light. And then he creates the heavens and the earth. And then the next statement is, and there was darkness on the face of the earth. Where did the darkness come from? That's an important question. I don't find too many people asking that question in that passage. Where did the darkness come from? If God is light, he's not going to create darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. Where did that darkness come from? Anyway, that's another thing to think about. So light's used as a metaphor to describe the essence and the character of God. First John 1, 5, John says this is the message which we have heard from him, that is from the Lord Jesus Christ, and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, none. He is light, pure light. First Timothy 6.16, Paul writes, who alone, referring to God, has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. Where did he get that idea? Where did that come from? Is there a biblical reference for that? What about Isaiah 6? When Isaiah is suddenly before the throne of God and he recognizes he's a sinner and he says, oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He is all of a sudden taken from this world into the presence of God in unapproachable light and all of his sin is exposed. God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Psalm 104.2 says, covering thyself, referring to God, with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Psalm 89.15, how blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. So we see this metaphor of walking even goes back into Old Testament times to describe how a person lives. We are to live in the light of God's countenance, in light of his essence. Psalm 4, 6, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. Habakkuk says his radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Psalm 44, 3 says that we are in the light of his presence, okay? So God's presence is described as light. 
second point is that light in reference to its brightness and white purity is used as an illustration of God's righteousness and justice. I don't use the term holy. As we've studied many times, I think the word holy has been misunderstood. Many people, I was taught this, I taught this many years, that holiness is a combination of God's righteousness and justice. It really isn't. Um, my, my first year, first year Hebrew, we had to do a word study. We were taught how to do word studies. We did a word study on the verb kadash, which is the word that is to be made holy or to be sanctified or to be set apart. That's the core meaning of kadash, is to be set apart. And when you look at the various forms, the nouns, participles that are built on that root, it describes the temple prostitutes to Baal and the Astra. They are kadash. And it depends. You'd have the feminine form for the male, pro, for the female prostitutes, and the masculine for the male prostitutes. Well, and there's no way in which you're going to describe a a uh, a religious prostitute, a ritual prostitute, as a as holy, as morally pure. So, what's the real idea here? It's being set apart. They are set apart to the service of their God. So sanctification, which comes from that same root idea, is the idea of growing so that we are set apart to the service of our God. And when it's applied to God, what it emphasizes is his uniqueness. He is set apart from everything else that we can imagine. There is no analogy that can really help us understand God because, as the Bible says many times, there is none like him, no, not one. There is no analog. There are some things we use, but we know that they fall short. God is one of a kind. Uh, He's unique in his sovereignty. He is unique in his righteousness. He's unique in his justice and his love. He's unique in that he is eternal and infinite. He's unique in his power. He is omnipotent. He's unique in his presence. He is not confined to anything. He is present to every part of his creation simultaneously. He is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows everything that could have, would have, should have happened, but didn't. And what the permutations of that would be. We can't grasp this. It makes our brains hurt. But this is our God. He is one of a kind. So when we think of holy, we need to think of holy in terms of not righteousness and justice, but we need to think of him in terms of his uniqueness. He's one of a kind. There is none like our God. And so that's why I'm more and more, I'm trying to be consistent with that and always refer when I'm talking about this aspect of God's character uh, as righteous and just, which are terms that are used specifically in Scripture. Job thirty twenty six says, When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. So the contrast between good and evil is light and darkness. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We won't mention any political parties or philosophical systems. Who substitute darkness for light, 
and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah 58, 8, Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord, which is his, a summation of his character and his importance, his weightiness, literally, uh, will be your rear guard. Third, light in its piercing quality is illuminating, and it reveals what is in the darkness. It's a metaphor for the justice of God. It penetrates everything. If you've ever been to any of the canyons, Mammoth Canyons, and I think that's in Kentucky, or Carlsbad in New Mexico, I've been there, or Longhorn Caverns out near um, um, out near Marble Falls, near Camp Penile, or you've got, uh, where's another, Wonder Cave in San Marcos, and they take you down, and you're pretty deep below the ground, and then they'll turn all of the lights off and have you hold your hand up in front of your face, and, and you can't see anything. And they may keep the light off for two or three minutes so your eyes adjust to the darkness, and it, still you cannot see anything. And I remember first time as a, probably a 10-year-old kid in Longhorn Caverns, and it's a huge, huge room, probably 50 feet high inside of it, and the uh, ranger struck a match, just a little match, not a, not something huge, not a torch, didn't turn on a Coleman lantern. He just struck a match, and you could read by it 50 feet away. That's what light does. It, it's either there's light or there's darkness. There's there, there's nothing in between, and it is God and God's word that illuminates things. Isaiah 59.9, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. Light is in contrast to darkness representing everything that is opposed to God. That's darkness. Doesn't matter how nice and sweet they are doesn't matter how well-educated they are. It, it doesn't matter how religious they are, how many times they go to church, how many times they pray, uh, how many times they go to little Bible studies. If they're not a believer, they're in total darkness. And there are many pulpits in this country that are in total darkness because they do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. They, they don't believe the truth. Now, fourth, the absence of light is darkness, and it indicates the presence of divine judgment as well. It's the condemnation of God for violating his righteous standard. In Amos 5.18, we read, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. The day of the Lord has a narrow and a broad sense. Uh, the narrow sense is the final Armageddon campaign, which immediately precedes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. The broader refers to much of the what we refer to as the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. 
I question some of that, but that's how most people look at it. But I think it's more often just used for the intense judgment of the last series of bold judgments. It's going to be darkness and not light. Uh, I'm glad I'm not going to be there. Amos 5.20, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom, with no brightness in it? The fifth point, the presence of light often refers to the veracity of God, his eternal truth. In Psalm 43.3, we read, O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill. That would be, writing at this time, that would be the Temple Mount. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling places. The prayer is that as I understand uh, God's truth and who God is, then that will motivate me to go to the temple to worship him. Number six, specifically light then describes more specifically the facets and components of God's integrity the combination of his righteousness, his justice, and his truth. His righteousness refers to the standards of God's character. Justice is the application of those standards to his, uh, to his creatures. And truth is those, it relates to those standards. The absolute reality is God created it. Psalm 89, 14, one of my favorite verses to describe this, It is a psalm that is a meditation on the glories of the covenant that God made with David. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. What that is saying is that God is always going to do the right thing. He always exhibits the right standard, and his justice will always conform to his absolute perfect standards. No matter what we may think today, they will always conform to his standard. And then he says, loving kindness. This is the Hebrew word chesed, which refers to his faithfulness to his covenant, his faithful, loyal love and truth go before thee. They are more of a sort of an application or expression of his righteousness and justice. Verse 15, we read, how blessed are the people who know thy joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. His countenance is described by light, and so that relates to all that he is. But in some ways, it is uh, more specifically oriented to righteousness, justice, and truth. Seventh point, the absolute truth of God, then, is the attribute underlying his revelation. So light is used to represent the illumination of divine truth. God is righteous. He is just. The expression of that is truth. That which conforms to reality as God has created it and defined it. And light is used to represent illumination of that truth that he reveals to us. And his word lights our thinking and our way of life. What you do, how you act, is related to our values and how we think. Everything starts between our ears. The choices we make, the things we think about, 
the emotions we either control or indulge in. Psalm 18:28 For you will light my lamp the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. So that first line he's saying Lord you're going to light my lamp and that's talking about what is necessary to be able to see. And then he goes on to say the Lord will enlighten my darkness by lighting my lamp. Psalm 119:104 Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. God's Word enables us to understand life as it is, understand reality, understand um, what the issues of life are, how we are to think, and how we are to resolve uh, challenges that we run into. So under point eight, in conclusion to the first seven points, light represents the totality of divine essence with a special emphasis on His righteousness, His justice, His truth, and the illumination and guidance which God's revelation in the Bible provides for life. It focused first on God's character. His character, and it's very core, if he is light, that means that he is revelatory by nature. His very essence will reveal himself. So when people go around and they say, well, I see no evidence of God, the response is take the blinders off and open your eyes. And admit to yourself, because Scripture says that God has made his existence, his attributes, his invisible attributes evident within them. So anybody who says, no, I don't know, they're they're blind. They've suppressed, as Paul goes on to say, the truth in unrighteousness. So moving on, the ninth point, the light of God is then related to life itself. So at the very beginning, we saw that it relates to his character, righteousness, justice, truth. It relates to the illumination of revelation. And now it is tied to life. There's a connection between light and life. Psalm 36, 9 may sound familiar to some of you. This is the verse on which we base the title for the our YouTube channel, Light from the Light. For with you is the fountain of life, David writes. He starts off talking about you're the source of life. In your light we see light. What? Sounds like there's a jump in logic there from life to light. But not really. Because when you come to John 1, which we will in a minute, it says that that in him, Jesus, was the light of life. So this tells us that light and life are intimately connected. Psalm 36, 9 is saying, in your light, that is, in the illumination provided by your word, we see light. We're able to correctly understand all the issues, challenges, purposes, and meanings of life. Tenth point, Jesus is said to be both light and life. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Connect those two dots. Without the light of God, there is no real life experienced by the creature. The eleventh point is we see, continue to see that life is contrast, light is contrasted with darkness. Light is the revelation of God. 
Darkness is the absence or the rejection of God's revelation. So you have the contrary. Light, darkness is the absence of light. It's the rejection. It's the denial of what is seen in illum- the illumination of God. John 1.5, John writes in the light, which refers to the logos, the Son of God, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You go many places in our country, in our world today, and you start talking within a biblical framework, they're going to think you're nuts. They've never heard an evangelical believer articulate anything. And you're going to express some some views, some ideas of right or wrong, and they're so far away from any biblical influence in their periphery that, that you sound like some crazy, wacko nut job. Because that's what they've been told. Is anyone who doesn't agree with the views of the uh, young intellectual elites that dominate the the halls of academia and the many different um, variations of it on the far left that that they're just that they can't comprehend somebody having another view that's why they're that's why they're trying to suppress the second amendment in so many ways and in so many places because they they hate it they don't want somebody expressing truth. It's a spiritual problem. It's not just a political problem. That's just what's on the surface. It's a, it's a spiritual problem. They hate what it represents because it represents dark darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. John 3.19, John goes on to say, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That describes a lot of our culture today. They love the darkness. They hate the light because their deeds are evil. It's a spiritual problem. It's, it's, it's not a political problem. Those are all dimensions, but at core it is a rejection of God's truth that according to Romans 1, they know in their heart of hearts is true. John 3.20 says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. The very presence that you and I have as an obedient Christian thinking within a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview, our very presence condemns them. Our very presence threatens them because they, they know what we stand for. They hate it. When we, many of us were growing up, it wasn't like that because there were many people who were not only believers, but they were influenced by the Scripture. But it's not true anymore. It's not true anymore. And so there are enough of them now to where they're able to band together and they're able to influence corporations and they're able to influence uh academia, and they're able to influence political parties and political leaders to push them in a way that is hostile more and more to biblical truth and biblical Christianity. But 12th, 
Scripture teaches us that Jesus is the light, just as God is the light. John 1, 9. It's been talking in the previous section from verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it continues, picks it, talks about John the Baptist, verse 9. He says that the, that the Word, referring back to the Logos, the, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. See, that's common grace. There is illumination to externally. Romans 1, Paul says that, that it is evident from God's creation that he exists, but he's also made it evident within them. So this is talking about the fact that externally Christ illuminates everyone in the world. In John eight twelve, Jesus says to them, that is to the Pharisees, I am the light of the world to, the, to his Jewish audience there outside of the temple where they had a large menorah. He, and he's making an application. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall walk, not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, there's that connection again. Now think about that. He's making a statement. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, either he's the light of the world or he just has about half a dozen screws loose. That's a pretty arrogant statement to make unless you are actually the light of the world. And so uh, going along with C.S. Lewis's argument, uh, you know, you don't have the option to think Jesus was a good man or a nice guy or a religious innovator because of the claims that he made. He claimed to be God. Many times you'll hear liberals say, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. And we have a new word to describe that. Because he does. In many ways, that's why you have these places where he says, before Abraham was, I am. And what did the Pharisees do? They picked up stones to stone him because they knew he just made a claim to be God. So just because the intellectual elites of our day need to have him say, I'm God, yes, really, I'm saying this, I am God. They, they want it, you know, on every line. Uh, they're going to just lie and say he never claimed to be God. And he did it in many ways, and they tried to stone him uh, every time. That's what they arrested him for. What did they say at the trial? He made himself out to be God. John 9, 5, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In John twelve thirty six, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. John twelve forty six, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Now, abiding is a term for fellowship. So he's not saying that you, that you, um, uh, would, that if you're saved, you won't abide in darkness because later he's going to say, you know, if you say that you're uh, in the light and you walk in darkness, you lie and you don't practice the truth. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It means that they're living you know, according to their sin nature and according to the thinking of Satan. Speaking of Satan, under point 13, Satan is the master counterfeiter. And he counterfeits truth. He counterfeits life. He counterfeits Jesus. He counterfeits revelation. 2 Corinthians 11:14 says and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light 
Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So the deception out there is is, is difficult because it's a deception that counterfeits light. And so apart unless you have the word of God, it's easy to be deceived. So what we've seen to this point is that God is light. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus' light brings life into the world. Light and life uh, are connected and, um, and dispel the darkness. But the darkness rejects the light. The one who comes to the light becomes a son of light and is not to abide in darkness. And Satan is the master counterfeiter of life, of light. So, since God is light, which was point one, 1 John 1, 5, we are to live our lives in the light to have fellowship with one another. This is seen in 1 John 1. Now, the next section that we're going to deal with, which we'll wait to next time to develop, is our new identity in reference to God's light. We have this new identity. We are now children of light. That's our new identity, our new position, and the command that flows from it immediately is that we are to live our lives, which means to think, to act, to talk, to conduct our lives in a way that shows that we have a somewhat familiarity with the light of the world. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can study these things and understand them, that you have revealed yourself to us, and that you have revealed yourself ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. That as the God man, he came into this world to reveal you to us and to go to the cross to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, because we are born in darkness. The only way we can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son is by trusting in him as Jesus Christ, as as the Savior of the world. Trusting in Jesus Christ as the one who died as our substitute on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening online now or in the future, that if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, that's all that's required for salvation. We don't have to somehow improve our lives to make ourselves savable. Uh, we don't have to somehow bargain with God and say, well, if you save me, I'll do these five things. It's just a simple transaction. Jesus died for you. He paid your penalty in full. Now, you can accept it or reject it. That's all there is to it. You can accept it and believe that Christ died for you, in which case instantly you are, you are saved. You are declared just. You are given eternal life. And now you are a new creature in Christ with a new identity and new responsibilities, obligations, privileges, and a mission in life. So we pray, Father, that you would illuminate through the Holy Spirit in your word the minds of those who need to be saved, who may think they are, but they are not, that they would understand the true gospel of grace that all we are to do is to believe that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried, rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that by believing on him we have everlasting life, our sins are forgiven, and we are justified. 
Father, we pray that you would make that clear, but we pray also that you would challenge each of us that now as children of light, we are to walk as children of light, and we are to live a certain way, and we are transformed day by day, and and our minds are renewed by studying your word. It's not a fast process. It's not uh, spirituality in three steps or five steps. It takes time. It takes right decision-making. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two and a half steps backwards. But, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with our new uh, obligations and responsibilities as children of light, that you might be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.